Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Many of us, of course, are dealing with daylight savings and the loss of one hour. I, for one, hope, as many are suspecting, that this is finally the year that that change becomes permanent, that we don't shift our clocks back in the fall. It seems this practice of changing our clocks has outlived its usefulness, so I'm hoping that this is the year we finally get to the point where we stop doing that, because there are some places in North America that don't do that, and there are places, there are countries around the world that don't do it as well, so I think it's time for us uh, to, to make this permanent change, at least I'm hoping. I also know, on the other hand, that there's a lot of drama around this change in one hour. Yes, we can be a little sleepier, and I know there are statistics out there that prove there are things that happen in the days after uh, daylight savings. But you could also just travel to a place in the time zone next to you and deal with the one hour change, which everyone does all the time. So I think sometimes we make a bigger deal out of this than it actually is, but I for one hope it sticks. Uh, it's nice to be off the road this week, uh, so I'm hoping to be very productive uh, working from home, getting some writing done, lots of things happening. We'll see, you know, as they say, the best laid plans, right? Uh, uh, just a reminder again that there is still time to register for a few upcoming events. The Grading from the Inside Out two-day training happening virtually April 5th and 12th. The end of this month will be face-to-face in Des Moines, Iowa, March 28th and 29th. And of course, San Antonio, Texas, April 25th and 26th. And the Standards-Based Learning and Action training is April 27th and 28th, also in San Antonio. So all this information can be found on the Solution Tree website. I'll have links for that in the show notes, of course, so you can check that out. Okay, as always, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is my friend Ken Williams. Ken and I are going to talk about and focus on what he calls Ruthless Equity, which is the title of his soon-to-be-released book. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about an aspect of assessment that I feel is an unnecessary overkill. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Ken Williams is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by sharing some thoughts on our all-too-convenient relationship with the research. Now, let me begin with three things. First, this is not about politics. This is an observation on my, on my part. Two, I hope that once we're past the pandemic that we retire the expression, I did my research, because most of the time when somebody says that, I just hear, I have the internet. And third... I understand that fear is an incredibly powerful emotion, and I don't begrudge or shame anyone for how they feel. None of this is about that. Okay, now some background. Just this past Friday, our mask mandate here in British Columbia was lifted. Now, I know that the lifting of the indoor mask mandates is old news to some of you, given where you live, but it's fresh for us here. Now, we know we're one of the last jurisdictions to do this. Proof of vaccinations are ending April 8th, but masks are over now. And what I noticed almost immediately is how the script has been flipped. Suddenly, the follow the science crowd no longer wants to follow the science. Now, full disclosure here, I'm fully vaccinated, boosted. I wear my mask diligently, or at least I have. I wear it when I travel, of course. I cause zero issues with this. I'm a go-with-the-flow kind of guy. I'll do whatever we have to do. No political agenda here. This is an observation. But when the announcement was made, the reactions were swift, they were intense, 
And just like they were two years ago, when the mask mandate came in, the reactions were kind of varied around society, around our, our community. In the spring of 2020, remember, when masks and physical distancing, et cetera, were brought in, there was, of course, the obvious pushback from people who dismissed COVID as no big deal. What they were told by what seemed to be the majority of people was follow the science. Now, despite what some of them wanted to hear, it seemed the vast majority were on the side of the idea of following the science. But now, it seems two years later, many of those very same people don't want to take their own advice. Now, let me be clear. As far as I'm concerned, if you want to continue wearing a mask because you're more comfortable at this point or you're still worried or you, you, know, you feel it's best to protect you, I have zero issues with that at all, right? My issue is with criticizing the lifting of the mandate itself, right? So suddenly now we're hearing, oh, it's too soon and COVID's not over. Yeah, we know COVID's not over. I mean, that is the least profound statement anybody can make, right? COVID's not over. It's never going to be over. As far as I can tell, I'm look, we, everybody starts their sentences with, I'm no doctor. But honestly, do we really think COVID's just going to disappear? I, I, I don't see that happening. So when the science told us to mask up, to distance, to vax up, all of that, you were good with that because it aligned with how you were feeling at the time. But now the science says otherwise, and suddenly we're critiquing the science. Got it. Again, wear a mask if that makes you more comfortable. Seriously. Anyone who confronts anyone or criticizes anyone or shames anyone for continuing to wear a mask is just an asshole, okay? Honestly, leave people alone. Let them do what makes them feel comfortable, makes them feel safe. Leave them alone. However, what has been exposed in all of this is our convenient relationship with the research, with the science. When the science favors our position, we're all about the science. And we tell people to follow the science. When it doesn't, we're skeptical. We start to express our doubts. And I'm not saying you have to blindly support any assertion, but this goes back to episode one of this podcast way back in September 2020 when talking about the opening of schools. When I talked about what Ralph Hertwig and Ido Arev wrote in 2009 on the heels of the recession, and they talked about the difference between the description and experience, right? The, the description experience gap. In decisions that are made from experience, which is your own sphere, people behave as if rare events have less impact than they deserve according to objective probabilities. In decisions that are made from descriptions, like what you hear on the news, people behave as if rare events have more impact than they deserve. Okay, more context here about my province. In British Columbia in the last two years, there have been a total of 351,751 cases of COVID. That's a big number. Okay, I'm not saying it's not. But it's only 7% of our population. There are 5 million people who live in British Columbia. That means that 93% of British Columbians have never had COVID. Now, that number may be smaller because there are a lot of cases that go unreported. I get that. But something like that even, let's say it's 92% or 91%. Now, of the cases, 2,932 deaths related to COVID. Again, I'm not going to you know figure out which ones were caused by COVID, which ones were complications due to COVID. That's the number that's being reported. And I'm not trying to be dismissive of that or minimize that. Because if you've been directly impacted by COVID, it's tragic. And, you know, 351,000 cases or 2,932 deaths is that many too many. But 2,932 is only 0.83% of the total cases. 
and it's 0.05% of our entire population. That means, no matter how you slice it, the vast majority, not even majority, is a ridiculous amount of majority, have not had COVID or any tragic connection to it. Remember, there was a time where COVID had a 5% or a 3% potential death rate. Your experience, of course, is going to dictate your mindset. But the science, the science is saying that while cases increased during the Omicron wave, it was significantly less impactful, less lethal. And this is where what you see on the news versus what your experience is kind of differs. So if you are in the unique situation where you are immunocompromised or you've been close to a tragedy related to COVID, of course you're going to be more cautious and more concerned. I get that. And no one says you can't continue wearing a mask or taking the necessary precautions. And of course, if you are immunocompromised, you should because you always have in your life. But the general science supports the moves that are being made right now. Now, is there an economic component to this decision? Of course there is. Absolutely. That's not this, this false dichotomy of money over people. Okay, because people's well-being is tied to their economics. It's only those with total job security or financial stability who want everything shut down, locked down indefinitely. The people for whom their entire financial well-being is tied to their restaurants, their small businesses, they're suffering. And that has to be considered as well because no one is volunteering to pay their mortgages or their business loans or the vendors that they get their supplies from. Now, is COVID going to be a straight line downward from this point forward? Probably not. I mean, I have no crystal ball. I don't know, but I'm sure it's going to fluctuate. I'm certain we're going to have another wave in the fall, but we cannot continue to do what we've indefinitely done. Uh, and, and more importantly, the science does not support that. But of course, skepticism is what we do. Some skepticism is healthy. It's good to be a healthy skeptic at times, but some of it is just for show. Like Teresa Amonville, remember, 1983, she said, only pessimism sounds profound, optimism sounds superficial. It's going to take people time to get used to being maskless, and we have to provide nothing but kindness and support to those who are scared. I get it. But the science generally does not support the continuing of what we've been doing. Your science might, you know, your unique health situation. But that is not generalizable to the vast majority of people in society. Now, when it comes to the research, I see a similar thing in education. Let's bring this back to education. When the research supports our perspective or our philosophy, we're all about the research. But when it doesn't, we're suddenly skeptical. I think I've told this story in the podcast before about the woman in a workshop I was conducting who basically told me she was dismissive of the research because she didn't need it because she'd been doing her own research during her 22 years of her career. And she, of course, was referring to her experience, not research. Now, I'm not trying to be dismissive of her experience. And experience does matter because contextualizing the findings in educational research is important because nothing is absolute. But to completely dismiss the research because you don't like its conclusions is a little ironic, especially for educators, because we would never let our students get away with that. Now, just like with health, you may have a different personal experience with certain strategies or students, and that has to be squared with what the research says. But to suggest that the research is invalid because you've never experienced it, that is a stretch. You know, take, for example, the use of zeros. There is no research that supports the assertion that using a zero for work not handed in acts as a universal motivator. But that doesn't stop people from using them and, and doing that. Why? Why? 
Well, they philosophically disagree with the conclusions of the research. Now, if the situation were the opposite, it would be very interesting to see how people would respond. Imagine if no one had ever used a zero ever. And I came along with this so-called cutting-edge approach that said, use a zero for work not handed in. Basically asking the people to be the opposite of what they were currently doing. Wouldn't the first question be, where's the research? Again, I'm not saying you have to blindly follow the research, because you actually can't. All educational research is context-dependent, and it's nuanced, because there are almost no absolutes in educational research. The context is your experience and you operationalizing the conclusions that emerge from the research. That's our job. You know, what could that or what would that look like in my context? But the idea that you support the research that supports your philosophy and dismiss the research that does not support, that's backwards, okay? The research gives us the most favorable course of action given the largest numbers of students. There's always exceptions to the rule, but the conclusions are generalizable. And the same goes for COVID. Yes, there are exceptions, but all along, public health officials have been using data, using science, to make decisions. Now, I'm not going to get into the conspiracies and all that stuff. They've been using data and science to make decisions. Should we just follow that blindly? No, of course not. You know, But we have to do a better job of balancing our experience with what is generalizable, whether it's education or COVID. You know, With COVID, there's no way that policies or health orders can be driven by individuals. Like we can't use the extremes to drive policies because if we did that, we would need to outlaw everything. Everything that had the potential to be unhealthy would need to be outlawed, right? You do you. Wear a mask. Take precautions. Do whatever you need to do to make yourself comfortable and safe. I take zero issues with that. And no one should. You should be left alone to do what you are most comfortable doing. But we have to be consistent. If we say follow the science, then we need to follow the science. Here today for the interview is my friend and colleague, Ken Williams. Ken is a nationally recognized trainer, speaker, coach, and consultant in leadership and in school culture. He's been a practitioner for almost 30 years, and he's leveraged the professional learning community's work at work model in two separate schools. And now through his company called Unfold the Soul, Ken helps schools join the why and the how of the work by combining heart, humor, and hammer. He is the author and co-author of several books, including 2015, Starting a Movement, 2021, Beyond Conversations About Race, and the soon-to-be-released Ruthless Equity. Absolutely love that title. Ken is also the host of the Unfold the Soul, Bless His Heart Leadership Podcast, which, listeners, is a fantastic listen <laughs> as well. So, Ken, it is great to have you on the podcast, finally. Thank you, brother. It's, a, it's an honor to be here, honor to work with you. Yeah, I love, love having you here. Not only are Ken and I friends and colleagues, we are also in the same NFL pools, not fantasy football, but the uh, the pick'em pools where you pick the winners. And I have to be honest with you, Ken kicks my ass in that pool every single year. <laughs> I'm struggling those. I'm struggling every year, but I'm coming back for more next fall. Yes, sir. Uh, absolutely love the title of the new book, uh, Ruthless Equity. Um, so I want to focus on equity uh, as we dig into our conversation today. And clearly, 
equity is the modern work of our school systems, but it seems that there are many things today that get passed off as equity work. Uh, so for now, let's just focus on racial equity and then we'll expand uh, to, to all levels of equity. Uh, but from your perspective, Knowing that difference, what are some? What's the difference between the high leverage substantive equity work and and maybe the the equity work that is just performative and superficial? Oh uh, well, how long do we have? We got uh, it's a podcast, so, Ken. You- <laughs> so here, you know, here here are the challenges. Uh, one, equity is nothing new. You know, I've had the great honor, lifetime honor and pleasure to sit at the feet of both Rick and Becky DeFore and God rest their souls and. Dr. Bob Aker and the PLC process when done effectively is an equity initiative. It's been around for 40 years. And so equity isn't new, but I'm happy that it's now on the tip of everyone's tongue. And of course, when new initiatives hit, it's usually a flashpoint, like something that happens that brings the attention to the surface and, you know, the social justice movement and George Floyd Mm -hmm. brought equity, a lot of attention through a racial context, but, I think that's problematic. Uh, I think it's problematic because equity is not a race. It's not, it's not an initiative based on race. It's, it isn't, you know, if when schools engage in equitable practice, all kids win and effective equitable practice will bubble, will make bubble to the surface issues around expectations, paradigms, status quo, bias, even racism. It will bubble to the surface. But when we start it, and only look through a racial lens. One, you're leaving tons of kids out. And two, it leaves off a very, very uh, misunderstood aspect of equity that's never talked about. And that is creating a sense of belonging and extending dignity. Mm-hmm. And that's something I address in my book. And it's based on the work of uh, Cobb and Crown Apple, who do just amazing work. One of the problems with equity as it is today, and I, I'm going to sound like your grumpy uncle right now because I'm, I'm that guy. It's like I've been doing it, and now it's being stretched in a hundred different directions. It's been politicized. It's been uh, massaged into uh, narratives. But ultimately, the only equity I'm interested in in my profession is the kind that moves the student achievement needle forward tomorrow for the kids who walk in tomorrow. I can't solve institutional racism, right? But I can help embed equitable practice on a campus. One of the real problems with the way equity is being handled today is that it's done through a lens of negativity. Now, I don't say that from a Pollyanna standpoint. What I'm saying is, for example, if Tom, if you were my life coach, my personal development coach, and we got together in January and you said, all right, Ken, what are your goals for 2022? And I say, all right, I don't wanna get fat. Um, I don't want bronchitis. Uh, I don't want to run out of, I don't want to like be short of breath when I climb two flights of steps. I don't want a muffin top hanging over my belt. I don't want gout because I had it in my left foot, but now it's going to be in my right foot and I can't get my shoe on. And at some point you're going to say, okay, wait, wait, wait. Ken, I, I, I got what you don't want. What do you want? In other words, when you accomplish those things, what will that bring you? You see, equity work today is void of aspiration. All we talk about, and that's why there's this recent backlash. If you haven't noticed, there's a ton of backlash. I got a friend in Wisconsin. He's got to scrub the words equity, diversity, and inclusion out of all of their policies. People are pissed and they're fighting back because 
our approach has been, hey, uh, teachers, you're racist, you have bias, you do microaggressions and all the other stuff. And I'm not denying the existence of it, but when you address things with people and it's not in context, folks are going to get defensive. And when you keep hammering them with things that are just negative, 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 no aspiration, it is going to die a fiery death. And that's what's starting to happen right now. All you hear about equity is inequity, anti-racism, anti-bias, microaggressions. None of that is aspirational. None of that portends a bright future, the ideal future. None of it is what we want. It's what we don't want. And I'm telling you, I know, you know, I'm joking around with that personal coach parallel, but it is absolutely true. You're not a good life coach if you help me set goals around not getting fat and not being short of breath. The fact is, if we focus on the aspirational parts of equity, then all of the anti stuff will bubble to the surface eventually. In the PLC process, we talk about a learning for all culture. And then we break it down, because I knock the ambiguity out of everything. I break it down into behavioral, measurable, observable practices. And then once you're executing those practices and we find that there's a pattern of kids from that side of town who aren't learning, then we can talk about bias, but it's being talked about on through fertile ground. When we take issues in isolation like we're doing right now and just say, you have bias, you're putting people on the defensive, there's no context. And we set ourselves up for what's happening right now, which is this backlash where people just like to hell with it to hell with this equity let's get just get back to instruction and who's left in its wake the kids who can least afford it and i'm talking about all kids all kids so you know that that's my perspective on equity is one what do we aspire to become two let's stay rooted in instructional practice i can't solve the pollution problem in the world but I was chewing a stick of gum 30 minutes ago and a little wrapper, I'm gonna make sure I throw it in the trash and not on the ground. So I'm gonna do my part. I'm gonna start helping world pollution at my home. I'm gonna take the garbage out on Wednesday nights and not skip a week because we know what happens. And that's what I help schools focus on is the stuff that's on your porch. Right on your doorstep is it, in your kitchen. Is it is it maybe Ken that we are, uh, and not that it's a binary choice, but is it that we are too focused maybe on the macro and trying to solve the the big picture uh, institutional racism, institutional equity issues, and not focused enough on the micro? Would that be a fair way to characterize your 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 stance that you're talking One, about? One hundred percent. So in okay. addition to things I do. I also put out these, uh, <clears throat> I guess I call them micro learning videos. They're all between yeah. 30 seconds and two minutes long. Yeah. And I did one recently on uh, some made up some word I made up called selectivity, selective equity. Hmm. And that's when schools and districts find themselves looking out the window at these grand macro issues. I, you say macro in my book, I say, you know, don't go global, go granular, mm-hmm. go granular. And Take care of the stuff on your porch right there. We have plenty of opportunities. We don't need to make up any new words right now. We don't need any new terms. There are enough exist. We had existing equity problems before COVID and the social justice movement. I'm not working on new stuff. I'm just working on it in the context of a pandemic, right? Or endemic or wherever we are right now. But yes, we focus on macro. Um, 
you know, I describe selectivity in that way, where we get to have intense discussions, uh, woke intensity, we get to, you know, sweat at the brow. And in the end, nothing happens because all we've done is shout out problems. What I'm gonna do is, you know, one of the questions I posed is, you know, for all these places, reading, doing the book studies on anti-racism, that's cool. And I'm glad you, it's good work, but can you be anti-racist and still got kids in below grade level track classes all year long? See, that's the part I have yeah. a problem with because yeah. that there, sir, is an equity issue. That is a right. social justice issue. And, and that transcends race. I work in plenty of small rural districts where no one looks like me. And there are many parallel expectation issues, right? Uh, inequitable policies in place. Yeah. So equity is not a race issue. It may have been brought to the surface through an incident rooted in race, but it is not a racial issue. Equitable right. practice gets everyone. So let's let's get let's get granular. That's the thing. We we're shouting out the window at these macro issues, at these global issues, and not addressing daily policies and practice that are aligned and misaligned with equity. And that's another thing. Equ Equity's become so that's another video I did. I talk about taking the helium out of equity. Equity just kind of float up into the cloud as this amorphous thing. And I keep pulling a damn balloon back to earth and saying, no, no, this is what equity is. So I have my own definition of, of equity. You know, I outline it in the book. It's concrete, measurable, and applicable. Is this maybe, you know, as you, as I'm thinking about, you know, the controversies that have certainly bubbled to the surface with critical race theory and, and is that, uh, which, which has its own narrative. I mean, obviously CRT is a, a legal framework that is yep. meant to examine institutional racism. And so many people have trouble uh, distinguishing between the idea of, of racism versus being a racist, that you can have institutional racism without individuals being racist. That's a hard thing for people to distinguish between. But but the idea of putting people on the defensive and the narrative's kind of been hijacked. Do you, do you think that, you know, you, you talked about being more micro than macro and, and shouting out problems versus solutions or aspirational. Is that what's gone wrong in your opinion uh, with critical race theory and why that's now been weaponized by some to, <laughs> to mean something it is not? Well, so I'm going to answer this question carefully. Yeah. Uh, from, a, from a global framework, yes, because to me that falls under the, we're looking out the window at these grand issues and ignoring what's going on on our campus today, things we can affect today. That, so I mean, from a global issue, and I'll be honest with you, you know, extra time is an oxymoron. And I tell schools all the time, your schedule reflects your priorities. And so I'm not afraid to tell you that I've not done a deep dive into critical race theory or the 1619 project. And so I can't speak to them because I've chosen to spend all my time looking at things we can impact tomorrow. Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. like, I, I'm not gonna, I, the plates are already full. I don't need to add anything else yet. I got ability groups rampant all over the place. We've got student tracking. We've got, you know, a focus on teaching versus learning everywhere. We've got this, you know, disproportionate uh, percentage of kids being, you know, suspended. And we have a complete lack of sense of belonging. I mean, violating dignity is such a norm in our schools. And in, in, in the book, I outline this practice that costs nothing that researchers found results in a 20% increase in academic engagement, a 9% decrease in disruptive behaviors, and a potential additional hour of 
academic time without adding anything. And you know what that is? Positive greetings at the door. The door. I had a feeling greetings you were going there. Students at the door. And I'm I'm looking at things like that. Because again, belongingness and inclusion. And I don't mean inclusion in, in the special education sense. Yeah. I mean walking into a room and not feeling compelled to change something about yourself and walking into a room and knowing that you belong there, which must be intentional, right? That transcends race. That transcends race. And that's the part we don't, we jump to race too soon. Okay. Because in my opinion, race gets us looking at why we're different first. When belonging transcends that. I've walked into rooms full of people who look like me and all my cousins and have felt out of place. I've walked into rooms with people, all the people look like me and my cousins, and I felt at home. I bowl a lot. I started bowling last fall and I'm consumed with it. <laughs> and somehow or another, I subbed for a guy one night and he invited me to this league on Tuesday mornings where if I can't make it, I don't have to find a sub. So it works out with my travel. It's a bunch of retired Delta employees. On one end, looks like guys grew up in the country, like you're chewing on tumbleweed mm -hmm. to guys who seem like cosmopolitan and sophisticated and everywhere in between. I'm the only bowler of color there. And I put my finger on what these guys have done, but from day one, I've been folded in as one of the guys and I feel like I belong. And those guys are my friends. Mm -hmm. And we don't have political discussions or racial discussions, none of that. There's just a sense of belonging there that they opened up their organization and brought me in. I didn't have to come in and change anything about myself. That's a powerful sense of belonging that transcends race. So then if we do get into discussions about race, where it's we start with what makes us alike, what makes us the same. We never start that way. We always start with what makes us different and it's human nature to figure out which of our differences makes us superior to the other. And so I start equity work in an almost spiritual sense with the sense of belonging. I mean, every human being has that yearning. We want to belong. We want to be seen. We want to be valued. That transcends race. And then we get into what does equitable practice look like? What is, how is equity defined? How is it defined? You go on social media and it's defined 50 different ways, depending on yeah. someone's narrative. All I care about is equitable practice that moves the needle tomorrow. Yeah. It seems that, um, you know, you mentioned social media, it, social media, the news, it, you know, it seems like that the sport of the day now is to dunk on people on social media and to, to attack them for every little word. And I think your, your message, Ken, is very powerful in the sense that we focus on what we can control. And that sense of belonging transcends everything that everything. we do. So let's talk about what we can control. And, and that is, uh, you know, equity within the school system and within the school setting. And sometimes I notice, and, and maybe this is not a fair observation, you could tell me if I'm right or wrong in this, but sometimes I notice that equity gets talked about in absence of academic achievement, that, that real equity is about academic success and belonging in an academic environment and all learners can reach high levels of academic performance. So, uh, you know, sometimes schools forget that part of the equity work is, do, do you subscribe to that? Do you agree with that? And if so, why do you think that happens? And how important is it for us to keep ourselves focused on the prize, if you will? My book isn't out yet, but I feel like you've read it. 
<laughs> because I talk about this very issue. All right. And one of the examples I use is, you know, I, I drive a couple of vintage cars and I've got a mechanic with an old school cat there who works on old GMs. And I love this place. I mean, it's Litz Automotive. And my, my point is this, if Mike, who owns Litz Automotive, decides to take his technicians through a couple of modules around equity work, I'm going to be 100% sure that somehow, some way, those modules are going to help them execute their fundamental purpose even better, which is to keep cars drivable. That's their fundamental purpose. That's the, if, I don't know why they would engage in equity practice, but if they did, I'm sure Mike would draw a line between the equity modules to their fundamental purpose, keeping cars drivable, repairing automobiles. That's their fundamental purpose. I don't expect that they'll do that. I expect they have ones on, you know, the fuel injection and brake systems because it feeds their fundamental purpose. So it drives me absolutely out of my mind when we, when we come up with ways to put instruction and learning aside and address other things. It's what Rick used to tell us uh, based on Jim Collins work. Uh, you know, the, yeah. it, Jim Collins called it a sucker's choice, right? The, the falling prey to the tyranny of or and not the genius of and. Learning is the through line of our work. That's what we do. We ensure learning. And so there's no way to separate the two. If we engage in equity work, it is in the service of high levels of learning for all students, providing equity, excellence, and achievement for all students, regardless of background. The same thing happened when we were coming. It seemed like, you know, more schools were going, you know, we were coming out of that summer, I guess it was 19 or 20. And all I could, all I saw were teacher, tons of teachers. I'm going to focus on SEL and I'm going to hug kids and I know they're going to be traumatized and if I'm gonna. I'm not gonna engage in learning for like three weeks. I and mean, we was like, these are like a basketball. Why? One, you, one, one. You, you are casting brokenness on kids. And if you want to talk about patterns and equity, ninety percent of the time is gonna be the kids who can least afford it. Right. Two, and Doug Reeves, one of my colleagues and friends, wrote a great blog post called "Don't Take the L Out of SEL" because we weren't doing SEL; we were doing SE. We we're gonna remove the learning. Everything we do is in the service of moving learning forward. Building relationships is about moving learning forward because people prefer to learn from people they like, who like them, and who see them. Everything we do. And so I don't deny that students, some students came back and, and dealt with trauma and adversity and this, you know, this rug being pulled out from under them again. But what I'm asking teachers to do is to base their response on evidence. Right. In my book, I talk about th teachers do three things. Great teachers. They assume nothing. They prepare for everything and they respond based on evidence. Be ready if you have students who seem to have trouble adjusting. But when they come in and we've already cast them as broken and traumatized, we're setting ourselves up because a lot of the time they're going to take our cues and then, you know, show those things. And then we're not basing things on evidence. It's got to be based on, we should never push learning aside. There's no instance where learning should be pushed aside. Ruthless equity focuses on practices and policies that advance equity and learning 
and then those that impede equity and learning. If you engage to find out whether or not kids are dealing with trauma and adversity, it should be as a result of you engaging them in the learning process. And then you see there's something going on, then we stop and try to address that thing. Yeah. But to assume that it's happening on the front end, I think it's, it's part of what equity is trying to solve, you know, just. Right, right. It's, um, it's interesting as you, as you were talking there, I sort of had a, a, a flashback or a, a thought about one of my many epiphanies throughout my career. And that is, I had a moment, you know, midway through my career where I started to realize how much I was projecting onto students things I was assuming. And when you, when you talked about the assumptions we make about students, I was assuming a lack of resiliency. I was assuming uh, some fragility. I was assuming that the student couldn't handle it. And I was becoming guilty of almost projecting onto the students some low expectations in isolated places. And I had this moment, I wouldn't say halfway, it was probably earlier than that, but but partway through my career where I started to realize, wait a minute, it's, it's not up to me to project onto the student. My job is to teach them and, and support them and help them and give them feedback and help them go go all that way. Why do you think we do that? Why, why do you think... Uh, I mean, it probably comes from the right place. It comes from, from, but how do we, I suppose, why do we do that? And, and secondly, how do we present, prevent ourselves from falling into that trap? What are some things we might be able to do to help ourselves remember yeah, I, not I, to reject onto students? I think it's part of human nature to make assumptions and judge. I did the same thing. It didn't yeah. last for long, you know, at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, you know, lots of schools went to online learning and virtual learning and a friend and colleague, Jessica Cabine reached out to me and said, I know we're at the beginning of this pandemic, but I want my folks to be ready when we come out the other side. So it was like, if the pandemic dropped in March, like the end of March, she was like, I want you to do six modules with my middle school teams. And so we set them up, you know, we're going to talk about the PLC process. And I fell into my own trap, the first module. I'm on there and I projected brokenness on those teachers. Mm -hmm. And we, I did a damn therapy session for 40 of the 50 minutes. And at the 45 minute mark, someone said, uh, so we're gonna talk about PLCs? <laughs> That's when I realized, <laughs> holy shit. I just, I just, I'll tell you, that woke me up to it. I was like, oh my God. You, yeah. Because I, I just assumed that they're going through so, who's been, a pande who's been through this pandemic before? And there was no playbook. But no. if you hover above it, the principles are the same, whether, I thought these teachers are from a bad neighborhood or like we do with kids, you know, from that, that side of town. I just projected and screwed it up. I apologized. I fell on my own sword and every other module after that was awesome. Um, ironically, I think it was module three. I was working with a team and there was a teacher you could just tell on the screen, like she just, there was something going on with her. And she was struggling with like missing her kids and having that connection and so she was dealing with some real local trauma and we stopped and put arms around and took a few minutes to kind of talk her through like that's the way it should happen. I tried to engage them in learning. I got the sense that this, there's something going on with this teacher and the space was safe enough for her to come forward with what was troubling her. And that, that's the, that was the appropriate way to approach it. One other thing I'll, I'll mention is, um, when we fall into that trap consistently and it becomes a pattern and you see it all the time. And a lot of my videos talk about it. It's the, it's the fine line between what I call charity and advocacy work, charity and advocacy. See charity, you, you, you pity the students 
and we feel sorry for them and we want to bubble wrap them and keep them safe and avoid trouble and trauma and stuff they've been through so much and it the the challenge of it is it's couched in love it has the same horrible effects as prejudice and racism do but they come from two different ends but they meet in the middle i call them two sides of the same coin because that charity work is going to do nothing but inspire learned helplessness entitlement mooch in the system laziness lack of self-esteem advocacy work and all of this i frame with when you have a student who's performing below grade level could be significantly behind the difference is when you meet that student where he is and both eyes are fixed on the student the best you're hoping for is that he just grows some I just want him to be better than he was at the beginning of the year. That's charity work. That's yeah. cha- you, that's when you think you're doing the kids a favor by coming into that badass neighborhood and teaching these kids or this poor neighborhood or whatever it is. Advocacy work is when you got one eye on the kid and you got one eye fixed on where they have to go, grade level or better. Because when you got one eye on the kid and one eye on grade level or better, that's going to pace your instruction. It's going to pace your intervention is going to help you figure out what to be ruthless about and cut away, what to be ruthless about and include. It's going to help you identify learning outcomes that will give you bang for the buck, that will buy you leverage. Because learning isn't linear. We want it to be linear. That kid's two years behind. Let's say it's 100 targets a year. That means the kid's 200 targets behind. Traditionally, we think of there's no way to make that up in one year. So we pobrecito the kid. And we do charity work and hope they grow. But when I, I've surveyed tens of thousands of educators and asked them, none of, not one educator has ever wanted that for their kids. They don't want that for their kids. They want you to say, okay, that kid's behind. That's where they need to go. How, what's the most efficient route? Brian Butler, a colleague and friend of ours, they did that masterfully at their school. They would start the year when kids were behind. Let's develop a plan to grow this kid a year and a half in a year's time. And it wasn't a wish or a t-shirt or a lanyard. Like they had a plan. Did it work every time? No. But did they move more kids further and faster into higher levels than they would have just hoping they grow some? Absolutely. Right. Well, that's your, um, your, your talk about charity reminds me of that expression, uh, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, nowhere, I think you, you could see that. And, and you're right about the danger of that is that it is couched in love. It is the, the blanket of love. And you can't, on the one hand, blame people for feeling you know, compassionate for their students and what they've been through, but helping them overcome and helping them push That's through right. and helping them catch up is really the goal. Listeners, just, you'll recall right. we had uh, we right. had Brian on the podcast in in November, Ken, and uh, just a great awesome. interview. So That's go right. ahead, right. Uh, yeah. The expectations yeah, it, it, that we it, have, you know, when you're doing charity work, yeah, you know, it sparks sympathy and sympathy ignites pity, and then we just hope they grow some. When you're doing advocacy work, that kid being behind sparks urgency. And then that sparks a plan. Like, I got 45 minutes. I could talk, you know, I could teach this kid for three hours, but I got 45 minutes. So what are the most high leverage outcomes I can focus on? It's, I know it's couch in love, but it's a form of othering. It's almost like you're looking down on people that way instead of advocacy, which is taking every student to grade level 
or better. But it's couched in love, and so it gets a pass. All you know, it gets a pass a lot. And so, right. and so, there's so much of that in education. I haven't had time to unearth all the new stuff people want to pile on mm-hmm. to a pile that's already big enough. And because you know, the way I end the selectivity video is, again, you get the woke discussions, intensity, passion, all of it without having to do any of the work. Isn't that great? Yeah. You don't have to do the work. You don't have to examine your practice and talk about how you have teachers teamed or do you provide collaborative planning time? Do they understand the process of teaching, learning and assessment? Like all those things we'd have to look at because we just keep shouting out, you know, all the antis, which gets all the attention. And again, the people left in the wake are students who walk into our building tomorrow. I love that idea of of our compassion being directed toward urgency as opposed to pity and and focusing uh, on on a plan for how we can help our students uh, raise their level of performance and reach those high levels of intellectual performance. You know, it's interesting because I often say that from an assessment perspective, a different lens maybe at times, although there's a lot of equity to how we assess for sure. Absolutely. But the question is either we, we begin, either we believe that students can reach high levels of intellectual performance or we don't. And that's where it starts. Yeah. You either believe they can, despite what they're having to overcome. And certainly when you take the extreme situations, and some students have extreme situations, but we can't argue that as the norm. We have to know that that is an extreme situation. In my work, I, don't need, I, won't, I won't even address the do we believe all kids can learn at high yeah. levels. What I address is do we believe we have the goods, that right. we have the ability to ensure high levels of learning. Do we have the efficacy? Do, do we have it? Do you yeah. and your team have it? Are we Not good enough? Kids, we yeah. kids have yeah. demonstrated video yeah. games don't even come with instructions anymore. No, they don't come with instructions. They get on there and they master that stuff. They, they master technology. <laughs> All kids Absolutely. from everywhere. Yeah. Right. They and they get immediate out. feedback. It's one of the things Doug Reese pointed out in this plot. Those video games provide, and they don't, the video games don't publish it to any kids. Like you, no. you ass lost. You lost, <laughs> you suck, come back yeah. later. And no kid gets off like, I'm traumatized because the video game said I suck. They don't. They they take a break, they come back, they log on, and they go after it again. Kids yeah. need structure. Kids need wins. And wins come from engaging them in yeah. the learning. So that's how I couch it. It's We don't question whether or not kids can learn. That's obvious. The question yeah, is, for sure. do you and your team have the goods? Because that's where the breakthrough comes from. Do we believe we have what it takes to ensure high levels of learning for all kids? And if we leverage collaboration the right way and we use assessment the right way, yeah. not to yeah. not to confirm what we already knew before we gave the assessment, but to show us what about our instruction is working, what's not, and then how we're going to get those kids across the finish line, mm-hmm. we'll be unstoppable. Absolutely. Uh, Ken, you are uh, certainly known for many things, but one of my favorite Ken Williams isms uh, is start with the crown. I love that expression. And for our listeners, Ken, uh, what do you mean by that? Start with the crown. Well, just a bit of history. I attended Morehouse College here in Atlanta, Georgia. There you go. Because of my seventh grade teacher who sat me down in seventh grade and looked past my hand-me-downs and my Wonder Bread bag posing as a lunchbox told me about the history of college and said, you're going to college. So my junior year of high school, I sent away for the brochure and it came back. And on the back of the book, there was a quote by a past president, Dr. Howard Thurman. And the quote said, above the head of her students, Morehouse holds a crown she challenged to grow tall enough to wear. Mm. 
I didn't understand the quote fully at the time, but it stuck with me. And all these years later, I realized that's what equity is. That's instructional equity. And so when, when, when you as a teacher identify an essential outcome and a learning outcome that every student must master, every student to be successful at the next grade level, the next course, the high stakes assessment in life beyond the K-12 system. I use this example all the time. If, if, if eighth grade teachers decide based on their conversation with ninth grade and how we want to turn students out after high school, that every ninth, that eighth, every eighth grader has got to walk out knowing how to make this remote with its six, seven, carry to one, eight buttons. <laughs> then the question of can they or can't they goes out the window because we've deemed it essential, right? right. And that means this is the crown. We hold this crown still, and no matter who the kid is, where they're from, what they look like, who the mama is, whether the daddy's at home or night, or what the income is, our work is to grow the kids to the crown. To the crown. That makes equity tangible. Equity must have an essential learning outcome. Must. Even the pictures of the equality versus equity images, and I include them in the book that we find on the web, they all have an essential outcome. The most popular one is having those kids see the game with an unobstructed view. That's the essential outcome. And so we have to provide students what they need, when they need it with urgency to master essential outcomes. So we have, so real equity is about starting with the crown and not the kid. I'm not watching the kids walk in and trying to figure out Tom Shimmer's background and what his life is. All that stuff is context. What I first need to figure out is what are Tom's strengths and what is he great at? And you take an, an enrichment approach to it, mind for his strengths, and then use those strengths to strengthen underdeveloped areas. Now, this is the crown in eighth grade, but there are gonna be some kids that aspire to this one. This one's got like 32 buttons on it. This one, some kids are gonna get, some aren't. Above the crown, kids will separate themselves, but we gotta stop creating more and more low groups below the crown. I got a video coming out soon that basically says schools are putting too much pressure on Marvel comics and Marvel universe. Cause they're, we running out of superheroes to name low groups after, cause we keep creating low groups. If we start with the crown, right? And not the kid, then you're gonna know intellectually that traditional tracking and ability groups cannot exist which means ability groups cannot exist in a culture of equity. Cannot, cannot. We gotta be going after great level of better with every kid. And the beauty of the crown is, is that it takes the pressure off teachers. They don't have to judge. I don't have to figure out what you know and what you don't know. There's no question of whether Tom or can or can't. We said he must. And so we must marshal resources and supports to grow him to the crown. Right now in schools, we got crowns. We got a crown for these kids and a crown for those kids. A crown for the kids on this side of town, a crown for the kids on that side of town. We got a crown for poor white kids, poor black kids, poor brown kids. We got a crown for the kids who don't speak the King's English. We got a crown for kids with IEPs, but there's just one crown. In life, there's just one crown. And if we take that approach and then only deal with the one question equity answers, which is how will we get them there? It's gonna it's gonna take care of a lot of our issues, and if we do have issues that bubble up, we see patterns of certain kids not making it. 
at least it's growing from fertile soil right. and not from reactionary politicized narratives. And when I say politicized, I mean on both sides. And I don't belong to either side, by the way. Yeah. I'm of the pragmatic you. party. <laughs> I don't I just want to do what makes sense and I don't care who says it. Right. Right. But that is that is exactly how we focus on the micro and focus on what is within our control. Yeah. Uh, so as we finish up here, Ken, I want to talk a little bit about leaders. I know you work with leaders a lot and, and your podcast is for, for for leaders and for leaders. Well, it's for everybody, but you certainly focus on your role as a leader in the past. So I'm wondering from your perspective, what is some advice you have for school leaders, maybe district leaders about how they can create an authentic culture of equity uh, in their schools? Uh, what are some important habits? I mean, we've talked a little bit about them, but important habits, mindsets, routines, some granular things leaders can do to create that kind of real equity in their schools. Okay. So one is the understanding of like cascading leadership. And that's something that uh, Tom May and his authors talked about in, I believe it was amplifying leadership. I may be calling the book wrong, but you know, the principle is teachers are like the principles of the kids and then the principal, their classroom, the teachers. And then at the district level, I always ask who's the principal of the principals. Right. And so we got to make sure that each of those leadership levels set their people up to be successful. We can't ask for equity. We can't ask for learning for all if teachers and leaders and students are not put in position through structures, policies and practices that allow them to flourish and be their best. So for principals, it's understanding how to leverage collaborative teams, how to monitor the process without having to be at every meeting, supervising and making sure the word gets done. You see what I did with that? I said supervise, yeah, but then I slid the hand in there. Um, it's also <laughs> it. with principles understanding how buy-in works and doesn't work. I'm not gonna go into it here, but there's a lot of misinformation about how buy-in works. Yeah. And knowing that there's one thing principles can do that no one else can do. Principles are the linchpin of equity and every other initiative. Because the one thing principles can do that no one else can do, not even a superintendent, is make things happen school-wide make things happen school-wide. And part of principalship is being visionary. You have to see around corners for your people. You know, when I take teams through the teaching, learning, and assessment cycle, and I immerse them in this experience where they come out the other side and they perform and they've executed like a high-performing PLC team without even knowing it, I ask them, just imagine every team operating the way you did in those seven minutes. What do you think the results will be? They're like, my God, it'll be great. That's awesome. But not every person's going to see that on the front end. You can't wait for everybody to just go, oh my God, now I understand it. You got to see around corners for people. The job of the principal is to hunt and gather, protect and defend. Is to make a case for change, hunt and gather the resources and supports for teachers to make that change. And then we got to take them by the hand and walk them all into the shallow end of the water. The worst thing in the world is when you got a school where some teams are opting in and some teams are opting out. That's the worst. And that's a leadership issue because the, that rests with the principle. And then for district leaders, what I would say is we finally turned the corner on teacher isolation. We're not where we need to be yet, but we've turned the corner now where collaboration is a norm. But man, principal isolation is the un, like it's the unmentionable boogeyman that still exists. Yeah. And district leaders need to treat their principals like collaborative teams. We know fourth grade teachers get better when they collaborate effectively around the right questions with other fourth grade teachers. Well, principals get better when they collaborate around the right questions with other principals. And too often they're left to their own devices, their own fiefdoms, 
and all they've got is what's up here. And we don't place them in structures where they operate collaboratively, openly, transparently. Principals I coach, I got a group. They're moving through the process so powerfully because when teachers talk about the challenges of collaboration, they're like, you know what? We're having the same issues in our principal collaboration PLC team. Like they're walking the walk. And that's powerful for principals because a lot of them haven't been through this process and have challenges asking teachers to do what wasn't expected of them. That, that wasn't brief, but that's what I got. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think you mentioned recently on one of, the, one of your podcasts about uh, how important it is for principals to have a network, uh, a support network, and, and be able to talk to others within right. your district or somewhere to be able to coach them up. Uh, great advice, Ken. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, you know, important to, to stay connected and to have that sounding board as opposed to uh, just not, uh, you know, not being in isolation, making yeah. sure that we have that connection to other people. Uh, two questions as we finish up here, Ken, and these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, the first question, and you can take this in any direction you want to, uh, but the question is, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Boy, oh boy. What keeps me up at night is what I perceive to be the crisis of confidence that we have as educators. Um, that we've made Carol Dweck a, a millionaire several times over, and deservedly so, for her great work mindset. And we've got we bought more growth mindset posters and got them around our schools everywhere. And yet we still revert back to the fixed mindset notions of the innate ability paradigm. And some kids are born smart and some aren't and ability grouping and tracking and saving the best and most innovative instruction for the 15% of our population we term as quote unquote gifted. The fact that when assessment data comes back, research has shown that as teachers, we attribute 85% of assessment results to issues of character and things that are going on outside of control. And only 15% of it do we own. That keeps me up because teachers are the difference. Principals, educators are the difference. When I say educator, I mean every person in that building who touches the life of a child, including our nutrition staff, custodians, paraprofessionals, support professionals. And so my life's work is pouring into educators and coaching them up to understand that the answers are in the room. Yeah. The, an the answers are not in the community. That's context. The answers are in the room. And when we lean into our collective expertise and put our backs to the wall and decide on learning for all, we're unstoppable. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, you're definitely right about reverting back to those uh, those yeah. habits and those uh, that have been ingrained in, in <laughs> so much of what we do in our system. All right, last question uh, is a question about success, uh, personal success. You take this again wherever direction you want to go to, but it's a simple question. And that question is, if a person, a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Oh, boy. I would say putting yourself in position to stretch beyond your reach and take swings in the service of what you believe your life purpose is. And those mm -hmm. things can change over time, just putting yourself in position to take swings at achieving take, your life's purpose. Yeah, take a swing at achieving your life's purpose. Yes. Uh, I, I love that. That uh, 
That's a great way of putting it. Uh, listeners, there are just a tremendous number of ways you can connect with Ken. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at Unfold the Soul. Uh, and Facebook, Unfold the Soul. LinkedIn, Unfold the Soul. You see a pattern here. Uh, YouTube, uh-huh. Unfold the Soul. Uh, the website, www.unfoldthesoul.com. And of course, I've mentioned the podcast. And Ken, I didn't really do it right when I introduced the podcast because you do a bit of a voice inflection with the uh, bless his heart. Uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about the podcast and maybe why you uh, why you do the Unfold the Soul Bless His Heart Leadership Podcast? I can, I can, I can. So <laughs> the, the, the impetus for, I was working in a very, a district that had all sorts of strata, but on the whole, pretty high performing and pretty progressive, well-funded Montgomery County Public Schools just outside of Washington, DC. Problem was we couldn't, my wife and I, both educators, couldn't afford a modest single family home with a patch of grass in that district. And it bothered me that I had to leave the district to go buy a house. Like we're a profession that creates all professions. So at fondness for Atlanta, Atlanta, the, the, the price of bread might be the same, but Atlanta builds a house for everybody. You can get your come up in Atlanta. So. I called my friends and said, I'm moving back to Atlanta. I'm going to be a principal. Where should I apply? They were like, any place but Clayton County. And I was like, okay, good. I'm not applying to Clayton County. Well, something happens when you resign a position, apply for a new one, and don't get a call for weeks. Right. You apply to Clayton County, and I'm glad I did. I got the job. I left my family behind for three weeks. I got to the first pre-planning day for principals, assistant principals, and district personnel. I inherited the lowest performing school in the district. And at the time, Clayton County was the lowest performing school district in the greater Atlanta area. I walked in, introduced myself, and people were so friendly, such Southern hospitality. And they said, my name is Ken, where are you principal? I said, Swinton. They say, oh, bless your heart. And I said, thank you so much. Because I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> but then I picked up on a pattern. Like every third person said, bless your heart. And then an older black woman could have been my mother. I swear, when I introduced myself to her, I think she laid hands on me and said, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, bless your heart. And that's when I knew that I had inherited the hot mess express. And so uh, (laughs) on top of that, when I left Maryland, one of my treasured mentors, Ellie DeYoung, gifted me with uh, two big fat blank journals and challenged me to journal my journey. I hate writing. But she's such an influence on my life, I couldn't let her down. And so I journaled every day of my years there. And I don't know, 14 years later, I decided to turn it into a weekly podcast where I read the entries verbatim, uncut and uncensored, talk about how I screwed things up or occasionally got things right and leave leaders with reflections. A podcast the longest is about 15 minutes. And so that's the rule of the bless his heart leadership podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, Listeners, honestly, it's a, it's a great listen, Uh, inspirational, honest, authentic. Uh, There's just a tremendous amount to learn uh, from, from, from Ken for sure in, in, in all the different ways uh, that you can connect with Ken. Ken, I I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to briefly talk about what I see as an unnecessary overkill in assessment, especially when it comes to multiple choice. I've heard this recently in workshops and 
online, and most recently saw a reference to this on social media, so I, I wanted to address it. Now, to be clear, this is not a question of right and wrong. It is, for me, a question of whether we should be doing this, but there's nothing wrong if you do. Okay, there are many things we do in assessment where there is a difference between what you can do and what you should do. And this is one of those things from my perspective. What I'm referring to is the use of multiple choice questions, but then having the students write an explanation about their choice of answer. Again, there is nothing wrong with doing it technically. In other words, there's nothing in the research that would suggest that this is a poor practice. And I know there are going to be many of you out there who disagree with what I'm about to say, and that's fine. It's, it's, it's fine. This is not about I'm right, you're wrong. But for me, when it comes to choosing an assessment method, it's really important to understand the purpose of the assessment and why the method helps support that purpose. One of the advantages of multiple choice questions is that you can assess a large amount of material in a very short period of time. Now, that's neither a good thing or a bad thing in the abstract. It just depends on what the nature of the assessment is. Sometimes speed is important. In a hinge question, for example, mid-lesson, I need the students to be able to answer the question quickly, and I need to be able to interpret the results quickly, and therefore multiple choice would be a favorable format. Now, constructed response questions, on the other hand, are about getting to depth of understanding and a thorough explanation of where students are in their thinking. Combining these two for me is an unnecessary overkill. Because trying to combine these two assessment methods is in some ways contrary to their purposes. If we want to assess a large amount of material in a very short period of time, and if what you're assessing is conducive to simply choosing an answer, then multiple choice is the right assessment method. But if you have the students stop and explain their choices, you will reduce the number of items the students can complete in that finite period of time. And therefore you counter the purpose of multiple choice, which is to assess a large amount of material in a very short period of time. Now, on the other hand, if you want students to explain their thinking, then just ask them or provide them with a prompt and have them explain their thinking. Having them stop to consider a multiple choice question and four potentially plausible answer options is also a drain on time, right? And it might prevent the students from thoroughly explaining their responses. Some of the answer options may actually serve to confuse the student more and therefore make it more difficult for them to complete the task. And again, I want to be clear. There is nothing technically wrong with asking students to explain their multiple choice choices. It's not a question of whether you're doing it right, I'm right, or whatever. Okay, it's not like you're not following the research or anything like that. At least I'm not familiar with any research that su suggests that that's a favorable or a poor practice. But for me, it's just that the potential downside is far greater than the potential upside. You see, another advantage of multiple choice is they, they are quick to score, right? Now, quick is not always the primary motivation, but quick can be an advantage when you've spent the time creating the question. There is this perception by some that multiple choice is easier but it is only easier if we've not spent the necessary time developing appropriate questions. If we just quickly rip off a bunch of multiple choice questions on Sunday night before a test we have on Monday, I know that's a caricature, but I'm just, you know, for effect, then it's definitely more efficient, but it probably won't be more effective. I always say to people that the amount of time you can or should spend developing a proper, well-crafted multiple choice question is likely the same amount of time that you'll spend scoring a constructed response. It's usually a net zero if we're taking the time to develop our multiple choice questions appropriately. If you want an explanation, then just ask for an explanation. 
If you want thorough details, then ask for thorough details. Provide a prompt and have the students explain their thinking or explain themselves in writing or even orally, if possible, so that you get the evidence that you're seeking. Again, you are welcome to disagree with me on this, and many do, and many will claim to have had a lot of success with these questions, and they have had success with these questions. I take no issue with that. I'm just offering you my perspective that for me, this approach is trying to be, for me, it's just trying to be too cute with multiple choice. Assessment methods are not interchangeable, and most learning outcomes or standards have a fairly clear choice as to which is the most appropriate assessment method. And when we try to combine them, I think it's more convoluted and contrived than it is creative. So, look, if you utilize those types of questions, you're not wrong. And I know I keep saying that, but I want to be very clear about this. But for me, it's unnecessary. It's an unnecessary overkill. It's a little bit like that expression that if everything is a priority, then nothing is. In the case of assessment methods, if you try to create an assessment that serves all purposes, then it likely won't serve any of them in the long run. I mean, this is what's so great and challenging about assessment is that there are a number of different choices that we can make, and they are all versions of right. There's many versions of correct. For me, finding clarity and simplicity with our assessment methods is important because assessment is complex and sophisticated. We need to make it easier, not harder to interpret the evidence that students present to us, and we need to find the most efficient and effective assessment method. I mean, maybe I should have called this segment Don't At Me as well, uh, because I'm sure many of you uh, could, you know, will try to explain your rationale for using these types of approaches, and that's fine. You don't need to rationalize it to me, because I already know it's fine. It probably does work for you, and there's probably a good reason that you approach assessment that way. You're not wrong. But as I said, this is not a question of what you can do, but for me, it's a question of what you should do. And for me, combining selected response and constructor response in the same question is an unnecessary overkill. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also email the podcast if you have questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions for guests or anything about the podcast. Remember also to check out the show notes for the links for the upcoming Grading from the Inside Out and Standards-Based Learning and Action trainings coming this spring. Next week, my guest is going to be my friend and colleague, Rosa Perez-Isaiah. Rosa is currently the Director of Elementary Equity and Access in the Norwalk La Mirada School District in California. So we're going to continue our conversation about equity. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but wherever you can leave a review or a rating would be most appreciated. And if you like what you hear, again, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and your colleagues or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.